I have uh, known Hills uh, for a number of years now, and I've often listened to her, and I know her of a woman of great wisdom and insight, and just a real joy to listen to. So we're so grateful for you being here. Hills has just driven from Cheltenham today. I was saying to her earlier, I wasn't worried about her not getting here. Sometimes people come from a long way, but I thought Cheltenham was, was an okay distance to come. So I'd just love to pray for you, and then... Are you on? Yes, not yet. Not yet. Lord, thank you for Hills. Thank you for bringing her here. Thank you for the words that you've given her to speak. I pray your real anointing on her now as she brings these words to us. Just fill her, Lord. And bless her as she pours out that you would pour more into her. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Am I on? I'm on? Yes? Good. So it's, um, thank you for having me. It's um, always a joy to come and um, meet new people. And um, I love days like this when uh, X chromosomes to get together. And uh, I really believe that God loves it in particular when his daughters and his girls gather together. And I know that he's got some special things in store for us today. Uh, just to uh, give you just a kind of snippet of background about me, because it's always nice to just know a little bit about who you're listening to. I'm married to um, Tib, who is um, a vicar at Trinity in Cheltenham, one of the vicars there. Um, I know, I recognize some of you here, you know, you've been down to visit us in, in Trinity, and uh, it's great uh, to be here. And actually, some of our Trinity girls are actually manning one of the stools out there, so go and say hi to them. Uh, I'm very glad, last, last Saturday, uh, he was taking a wedding in Trinity, and... Um, the, the guy on the sound desk forgot to turn his sound off, so uh, he was, they were singing sort of one of the great big wedding hymns, and my husband was being magnified through his uh, <laughs> little speaking system, so I'm very glad that you didn't hear me sing this morning, because it might put you all off. So I have four children, and uh, sort of all about to have birthdays, uh, about to be 22, 20, uh, 18, and 16, and they're all in the thick of exams at the moment, so uh, it's great, because there's less mess... <laughs> There's, there's less jobs to do because they're sort of very focused on their work. Uh, it won't last for much longer, but it's a bit of a blessing at the moment. Uh, my husband, as I've said, is a vicar, but he dreams in his, in his sleep quite frequently that he's James Bond. So I like to think, about my, think of myself as a Bond girl. You know, he's, he's acted out some of his sort of fights uh, at times in the past in his sleep. I have been bashed over the face once, thinking that I was a snake coming to attack him. Um, so... Uh, I like, as I said, to see myself as a Bond girl, and I'm also a big fan of Cadbury's chocolate. Any, any Cadbury's fans in the house? I know we're often divided on these kind of occasions between Galaxy and Cadbury's. And uh, we moved house a few years ago, and uh, I painted our bedroom a sort of lilac color, was wondering then what to do about the curtains. Uh, found some material, I, that's one of the things I like doing. Ended up hanging these fantastic um, silk curtains in my bedroom and uh, as I just sort of finished hanging the last one my husband brought up a cup of tea and a little bar of you know Cadbury's on the tray because he knows me well and I suddenly realized that the curtains I'd hung were dark purple and that I'd actually unwittingly decorated our bedroom in the Cadbury's colors so, so I challenge any of you to, to rival that for commitment so I hope you've come here today with a sense of expectancy of meeting with God. I hope you've really come here with a sense of expectancy. I don't know whether you're here because somebody's dragged you, 
because you had nothing better to do with your time today because it seemed like a great option to all the housework and the chores that needed doing. Maybe you're here because actually you're really desperate for a touch of God. But I want to ask you, are you expectant to meet with him today? Because the Bible invites us to draw near to God and we tend to draw near to him when we expect for him to, to, to want to draw near to us and bless him. And uh, I think, you know, we could, we, some of you will be very sort of familiar with days like these and uh, you kind of know the form and maybe, you know, you've done lots of these kind of things and actually you wouldn't think of not coming to a day like today. But I think it's really good just to take a moment and actually uh, let God know what it is that we want him to do for us. Jesus frequently said, didn't he, when he met people, what is it that you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? So I'm just going to, before we sort of open up Esther and what we're going to talk about today, I just want to invite you to put your hand on your heart. And uh, I just want to ask you and invite you in the quietness of your heart just to tell Jesus what you would love him to do for you today. You know, just hear him ask you that question. What is it that you want me to do for you today? And just, uh, you know, tell him what it is that's on your heart that you're longing for from him or longing for him to do. So just close your eyes and tell him what you want him to do. Okay. I mean, maybe for some of you, that was a tricky prayer to pray because you don't really know. That's okay too, because God knows, fortunately. But, you know, as you find him stirring stuff up or putting his finger on things throughout the day, you know, tell him. You know, tell him. So the woman for uh, today that your team felt drawn to uh, is Esther. I don't know how many of you are familiar with her story. Probably most of you are. Uh, she's one of my favorite characters of the Bible, partly because she's um, a woman. And uh, we'll come to her story uh, in just a minute. But as I was preparing and praying for today, I felt that God wanted to um, encourage us, encourage you, encourage me as uh, children of his to walk in significance. I felt that that was the kind of theme that he wanted to speak into today, that we would walk in significance. And that's what I'm going to be unpacking in these uh, two main sessions together. I wonder how you would describe your walk with God. I wonder how you would describe it. The Bible talks a lot about walking with God, doesn't it? You know, Adam and Eve were created and set in the Garden of Eden, and we're told that God walked with them. You know, he'd come to the garden and walk with them uh, in the eve of the day. We know that Enoch, you know, the thing that defines him in the Bible is that he walked with God. There's no record of him dying, but there is a record of him walking with God. Noah, you know, God's man of the moment, was the one who walked with God in faithfulness. We're encouraged in the book of Micah to walk humbly with our God. I love the image of walking with him. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of moving through life with our God, walking alongside him, not crawling, not standing still, not running at a lightning pace, you know, not charging through things, but walking at a sort of, at a, at a pace that is manageable and has momentum, and we're designed to walk through life with him. So I wonder how you would describe your walk. What kind of characterizes your walk with God? 
Would you say that you walk in fear? Do you walk in faith? Do you walk in disappointment? Do you walk in great expectation? Do you walk in guilt? Do you walk in peace? Do you walk in intimacy with him? Do you walk in courage? Do you walk in anxiety? Do you walk in love? What would you say defines and describes your walk with God? And I'm sure, actually, a number of characteristics define your walk with him. That would be true of all of us, and maybe they change at different seasons in our life. But I believe today that God wants to encourage us to walk in significance, that our journey through life with him is to be defined by significance. And you don't need me to tell you that we have a desire to, uh, to be significant. It's one of the basic human needs beyond our sort of instinctive needs for survival. To feel important, to know that we matter, to know that our life counts for something. We all have a basic need to be significant. And it may be a longing that you're conscious of having, something that rises up sort of, you know, every now and again. It may be a need or a longing that you've actually buried and it's sort of in a little drawer that's been locked because actually, you know, it, you, you've, you've felt that you've walked in insignificance and you don't know really what your life is about, that actually it's been too painful to think about and you've locked it away. But actually God has created with us, us with a desire to be significant, to walk in significance, to live lives that count. Don't, if you remember that story in the Gospels when uh, John and James, the sort of sons of thunder, were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus hears and he says, you know, what are you arguing about? You know, and he doesn't challenge them about wanting to be great. Very interesting that. He doesn't put them down. He doesn't challenge them. He doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. He merely redirects their passage, their thinking about where greatness comes from. And I think the reason he doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great is because it's a desire that he's put within every single one of us. And the world, as I'm sure you know, and you don't need me really to, to remind you of this, measures significance in a number of ways, two primary ones, I think. You know, the world would tell us that significance is measured by success, you know, achievements, you know, stuff on paper that you can put your name to. Be successful and you'll be significant. You know, live a successful life and you will live a, uh, a significant life. You'll be someone worth listening to, someone worth paying attention to, someone uh, worth watching, someone of value. And actually, that's a motivation that drives many of us in our careers, you know, or in other aspects of our lives. I think it's one of the things that propels all these young people onto X Factor. You know, it's a desire for success, isn't it, that will lead to recognition, and somehow that means I'll have value and significance. I will be a somebody, not a nobody. The world tells us that if we're going to be significant, we need to be successful. I don't know, um, for those of you that are mothers here, I can remember when my children were young, and uh, I was a full-time stay-at-home mother, and uh, occasionally I'd be out with friends, or I'd meet somebody new uh, in some kind of context or environment, and they'd say to me, what do you do? And I'd find myself sort of apologetically going, I'm just a mother, you know, as if, you know, shaped and influenced by the world's view about, you know, what have I got to show for it? There's no success or no achievement there. So therefore, I've got to almost apologize for the fact that I'm, you know, at the moment on this journey of doing something that in the world's eyes doesn't hold a huge amount of value. And I'm sure some of you can relate to that. And it's easy to, I think, for many of us to find ourselves sucked along by this current 
you know, measuring ourselves in the way that the world measures us and, and, and therefore linking our value and our worth to what success we may or may not see or have in our lives. And we look at how well we've performed. We compare ourselves to others. Have you noticed how easy it is to feel insignificant alongside others, you know, who are sort of have achieved in certain ways? Very easy to feel insignificant. I think the other way that the world measures and uh, tells us that we are sort of significant or of value is also through status. You know, through status, whether we've sort of got to a certain position. I mean, let's face it, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of hers, but Kate Middleton wouldn't curry the kind of favour and attention and have the kind of impact and influence that she has if she'd married, you know, John Smith from Bradford, would she? She's significant and has incredible influence in our world because of her status, because of who she's married to. And uh, again, I'm sure many of us will be aware of, either in our own lives or in the lives of others, you know, this sort of niggling temptation to, or we can feel particularly valued or particularly special or particularly important when somebody of significant status takes an interest in us, you know, or places value on us. It's somehow, if somebody who's important you know, takes note of us or you know, pays us a compliment or speaks into our lives or we get connected to them, that somehow makes us feel more important, more special. You know, we can fall into this trap of connecting to significance, to status. Again, you know, this makes me sound like I watch The X Factor the whole time. I don't, but I do have teenage children. And it's fascinating, you know, when the characters that are on the stage doing their auditions or whatever, they all want to know what Simon Cowell has to say. Because he represents status and success. He's the significant voice. So there's, you know, there's always a number of judges on the panel, but it's what he says that really either crushes or you know, uh, makes them feel you know, so much better, so much encouraging. And I think the whole social media world, let's be aware of it, the whole social media world taps into this, doesn't it? You know, my son, uh, my 18-year-old son, he's just about to, well, he left school yesterday, actually. He went out to the school prom last night. Haven't heard from him since because he had a sleepover somewhere. So I'm just hoping and trusting the Lord this morning that he's fine and, uh, you know is somewhere. He's meant to be going to play cricket fairly soon, but, you know, hope he's capable of that this morning. But he, uh, he and some friends posted uh, a picture on uh, Facebook this week. They, I don't know what it was. It was some, he showed me, tried to impress me. I couldn't really work out what was going on, but I made all the right noises. Uh, a picture of something going on in, on, on in school, getting rid of some table football, and they dressed up to do it. And it's like, Mum, we've got 350 likes for this picture. And it's as if somehow, I mean, for those of you that don't know what that is, it's their friends, you know, look at it on a screen and they click and they go really like that and, you know, they've seen it. And it somehow, you know, had this effect of making him feel sort of big and special and important because all of these people had seen this picture. And, you know, that's a bit of fun. But, you know, let's be aware of where the world tells us our significance comes from. And the flip side is true. You know, if the world gives us these messages that to be significant, we have to be really successful, or, you know, it's connected to status, how easily we can feel insignificant, you know, by comparison. How easily we can feel that actually we don't amount to much or actually the contribution that we're trying to make, you know, does it really count? Or, you know, if I can't be like this, then what I've got to offer doesn't make a difference. 
And I, God wants to talk to us and speak to us and inspire us this morning and this afternoon about walking in significance. So let's bring Esther in on this conversation. What does her story have to say to us about walking in significance? As I've said, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, partly because it's about a woman, but also it appeals to my sort of, you know, that sort of little girl in me that loves the whole kind of fairy tale type thing. And whilst it's not a total fairy tale story, it is definitely a better read than Hello Magazine. So if if you haven't read the story of Esther, can I encourage you to uh, find a bit of time later on, you know, this week or next week, get yourself a, a cup of tea and a big bar of Cadbury's and put your feet up and read it because it's a great story about intrigue, about drama. There's a really nasty villain in it. There's a woman who's the heroine of the story. You know, uh, it's, it's got all the sort of elements of a good old romantic drama. You know, beauty, love, power, deception, sacrifice, the works. And uh, it's one of the two books of the Bible that's named after a woman. Uh, and she is a woman that has a lot to say to us. We, c we can't read it. We can't unpack it all today. But Esther is a woman who shows us what true feminine beauty and true feminine strength really looks like. She has a beauty and a, a strength that in has the potential to inspire us to live the kind of lives that God is wanting us to live. She models true beauty, which captures hearts, not loins, and she models true strength that, uh, that, that uh, offers a life you know, to make a difference and to make a difference to the lives of others. And, you know, to sort of appeal to my total sense of all things shallow and sparkly, it happens in, you know, all within the walls of a royal palace. You know, lots of great stuff in there. So a very quick 10-second recap for any of you that either need reminding or haven't read the story. Uh, it's about a girl called Monica. Just testing. It's about a girl... <laughs> your way. It's about a girl called Esther who rather miraculously, out of nowhere, uh, gets promoted, as it were, uh, into the life in this palace in Persia. She lives in Persia. She's a Jew by, uh, obviously, by birth. And uh, the people in the palace don't know that. She gets picked uh, from a number of women to become the new queen of Persia. She marries the king, King Xerxes. And uh, sort of along, the, along her journey, along her walk through this particular calling in her life, uh, her uncle who lives outside the palace makes her aware of a plot by, uh, that has been formed by a very nasty man, a kind of equivalent of Hitler called Haman, who wants to destroy all the Jews that are living in Persia. And uh, Esther becomes aware of this information. Uh, she agrees to do what her uncle suggests, to go and uh, talk to the king, make him aware of this plot. And actually this plan of the mass destruction of God's people is foiled by Esther's act of intervention and bravery. And she saves God's people from annihilation. And it's a rich story. And there's so much, as I've said, that we could unpack from it. But for the purpose of this session, I'm just going to read three verses uh, from chapter 2, where we are introduced to Esther and uh, the beginning of her story and uh, what she has to say about kingdom significance. So I'm going to read it from the Living Bible. I'm not quite sure what version of the NIV is up here, for those of you that don't have a Bible. And it goes like this. Now, there was a certain Jew at the palace of Susa named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. And he had been captured when Jerusalem was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And he'd been exiled to Babylon along with King Jeconiah of Judah and many others. This man had a beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah 
who was also called Esther, whose father and mother had died and whom he'd adopted into his family and raised as his own daughter. That's your kind of Wikipedia introduction, as it were, to Esther. And this might seem like a very insignificant little passage, as it were, but this is the way God wants us to meet Esther. And I believe it says something significant about her significance and our significance, therefore. We are significant, you are significant, not because of your level of success or your status, but because of your design. You are significant because of your design. All you need and all I need to walk in significance on this life, to make a difference, is in you already. It is in me already. Look at these three verses. Does, is there anything in this passage that suggests that we are being introduced to a future queen of Persia? Is there anything that stands out about this young woman? I don't think so. There's not a single hint here that this young woman has the credentials or the qualifications to be the queen of the most powerful empire in the world. There's no sort of past history, there's no royal blood, there's no significant achievements, there's no particular training, there's nothing to suggest that we are being introduced to a woman who is going to have the impact that she has had. In fact, I think, on the face of it, there are a number of things that would, would suggest the opposite. So she was a young woman. She was a young woman in a culture totally dominated by males. Women in a male-dominated culture were deemed to have very little value, very little importance, and very little significance. And did you notice, Esther's brief introduction is preceded by the detail about the man in her family. She's defined by her relationship to Mordecai. She had this uncle. It's the men that gave the women in this day and age their context. So she was a woman in a male-dominated culture. She was also a Jew. She was an exile. She was a Jew living in the Persian culture. Well, exiles, again, are hugely significant, insignificant. She was a woman. That was bad enough. She was an exile in a foreign culture controlled by powerful Persians. And she was a bereaved orphan. She'd lost both her parents as a child. So any sense of sort of, you know, protection and, um, you know, a father to make a way in life for her, something to inherit potentially, had gone. She'd been bereaved, she'd been exposed to trauma and grief. We've got no idea how her parents died. And so she was carrying a huge amount of pain as well. So in the world's eyes, and I believe what this passage is wanting to highlight to us, is that Esther was about as insignificant as you could be. You know, God is highlighting that he has chosen in this story almost the most insignificant person in the whole of the Persian Empire to fulfill his purposes, you know, in this particular time in history. There's nothing in the story that indicates that Esther was going to leave a huge legacy with her life. And that's meant to be an encouragement for us. Everything you have, everything you need to walk in the significant purposes that God has for you while you are still on this earth, and there's more for you because you're still alive, it's in you. It's in you already. 
God has designed you for significance like he designed Esther for significance. And what you need, you already have. Why is that? Because you are created in the image of the Great One. He's designed you for great things because you're created in the image of the Great One. That's what James and John were identifying in that longing. You're created in his image. I wonder if you believe that. Not that you're created in his image, but you're created for great things. I wonder if you believe that. Because actually we're bombarded by all kinds of other messages in this life, aren't we? You know, we hear them going round and round and round in our heads. So many of us, so often. You're not worth much. I've got nothing to offer. I've failed. I'm never going to amount to much. I'm a bit of a nobody. I'm a disappointment. I can't do it. You know, God hasn't got much for me or whatever. Or I've got to be a super achiever or super gifted or super anointed or super this in order for my life to really count. It doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what your gender is, what your CV looks like, what your story looks like, what your history is. It doesn't make any difference. You've got what you need in you for Uh, the potential to walk in the significant purposes that God has for you. Esther had no control over her past. She had no control, actually, over her future. It was all in God's hands. But she had everything she needed to walk into the plans and purposes that God had for her, and it's true for us. And I love the fact that God loves to put, particularly in the Bible, the stories of kind of like the worst-case scenarios there, So we can't say, oh, well, you know, it's all right for so-and-so, you know, they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth, or they've got an incredible spiritual history, you know, they're a fifth-generation Christian, or look at the education they had, or look at the opportunities they had, or look at the investment that, you know, was put into them. It's like God picks the worst-case scenarios, the people who are orphans, or the people who are exiles, or the, you know, the woman in a male culture. He puts them in the Bible to be an encouragement and inspiration for us so we can go, well, if it was true for them, it can be true for us. Now, I don't know if that's how you read the Bible, but the stories that are in the Bible, they're meant to inspire us. We're not meant to sort of sit there and go, well, that was nice for them. You know, lucky old Esther, it was lovely for her, but that could never happen for me. We're meant to read them in a bit like sort of the effect that bacon has on my sons when it's sizzling in the kitchen, you know, they're in the kitchen with the saliva falling out of their mouths. When we read the stories in the Bible about God's people, they're meant to stir up in us a desire for the kind of life that they're living and a desire for the kind of experience that they have. That's what they're there for. They're meant to put us in touch with what we've been created for so that we reach out for it and aspire to it and press into it and ask God for it. And actually, if, if, if the, the Bible stories don't have that kind of effect on you, just, just ask the Lord to soften your heart and do something about that in you. Because we're meant to read this story and go, wow, if it's true for Esther, it can be true for me. It can be true for you. It's meant to be an amazing encouragement. Her circumstances, the circumstances of this woman, woman did not diminish either her call to walk in significance or her ability to walk in, in, uh, in significance. And uh, the same is true for us. We do not get to choose where our journey begins. We do not get to choose how our journey unravels. But we do get to choose whether we partner with God and step into the purposes that he lays out before us. And I'm going to talk a bit more about how we do that this afternoon. 
God has, you know, hear this again. God has created you for significance. He's created you to walk in kingdom purposes that will leave a lasting kingdom footprint on this earth, on the lives of others for the rest of eternity. You know, John puts it like this. He says, you know, Jesus says, I've called you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. That will last for eternity. And here's the thing about your design. The kind of DNA that God's put in you. It's totally unique. Look around, the women in this room. Is there anyone in here that looks just like you? No? Have you ever bumped into anybody that is the same as you? No. Because you have been made utterly and completely unique. There's no one else like you. Have you been created by design? By, you know, intentionally or by accident? I mean, I guess it depends whether you you agree with God and what he says about you. But in Psalm 139, we're told that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have been created very deliberately the way you've been created. God has put certain things into you, certain passions, certain desires, certain abilities, certain gifts. He's, He's allowed you to experience a whole kind of, you know, a variety of different experiences. There is no one like you. And you can only walk out your, you know, the significant purposes that God has prepared for you as you. You can only walk them out and you can only experience them and you can only fulfill them as you. And I think we as women in particular need to hear this over and over again. Because it's so easy to fall into the comparison game, isn't it? You know, we look at the people around us. You know, we compare ourselves so easily, so many of us, to other people and think, well, you know, if I was just like this, or if I was a bit different in this area, or if I'd had this experience or whatever, if things were different, then it would be different for me, and I might be able to, you know, live a bit of a different life or have a bit of a different impact. I'm not as holy as her, or I'm not as skinny as her, I'm not as good at praying for people as her, or I'm not as brave at sharing my faith as her, or I'm not as good a mother, or I don't get as many opportunities, whatever. Yeah, it's one of the enemy's favorite ploys to, to keep us from that, that pathway of significance that God has for us by distracting us, you know, with somebody who's running alongside us in a different lane. You've been created in a totally unique way for a unique kingdom purpose, and you can only fulfill it as you. Look at this thing about Esther. It's this little passage again. It's unashamedly highlighting who she was. A woman, a Jew, an exile, an orphan. They were the things that God chose to use, you know, to bring her to the place where she had this opportunity. And it tells us something else that was also significant for her pathway into her purposes that God had planned for her. It tells us that she was beautiful. God chose to use the natural beauty that he had given her. And she was picked because she was beautiful and put into this harem you know, where she could uh, have an opportunity to impress the king. She wasn't perfect, but God chose to use, you know, what was special and unique about her. And he wants to do the same with you. You are unique, and God wants to use your uniqueness uh, to uh, open up the doors for you, as it were, and for your significance to be fulfilled. So you're, you're significant because of your design, And you're significant 
because you're his daughter. That's the other reason why you are significant. No matter what you're doing, no matter how you're living your life, you're significant because you're his daughter. The uh, Edward VII, I don't know if you know this, he had a little terrier called um, Caesar. And actually, this little dog has its own Wikipedia entry, which I find fascinating. And he uh, was given his own particular point in the procession uh, behind um, Edward VII's coffin in the funeral. He had his own you know, place to walk. Clearly, a massively significant dog. And uh, he used to wear uh, a little collar that the, the, the king um, had made for him, saying, I am Caesar, I belong to the king. The reason that this little terrier was so significant and so important was because of who he belonged to. You know, the reason Esther ended up having so much influence was because of who she was in relationship with. And the reason that we have significant purposes, we have a difference to make, we have footprints of Jesus, as it were, to walk in and partner with and make a difference on this earth to the lives and the places that we're, we're placed is because we belong to the king. You belong to the king. You are a daughter of the king. And that makes you a significant woman with huge potential to fulfill the king's purposes for your life and for the lives of others. It all flows, as it were. Our effectiveness and what we walk into and the way we walk into it all flows from relationship. It flows from our relationship with the king. So the more you know his love, the more you experience his love, the more confident you are of his love as a father and of your position as a daughter the more confidence you will have to walk in the purposes that he has planned and prepared for you. The reason in the end that Esther had the confidence to go and stand before the king was because of the relationship she had with him. Her significance was connected to that relationship. It was worked out because of that relationship. And the same is true for you. The impact that, that you are yet designed to have is, is, is linked and flows from the relationship that you have with God. Really, really important to remember that. Because I think we can you know, fall into the trap of thinking, well, I've got to work hard, I've got to try hard, I've got to do my best, I've got to give my best. It's all about me and what I do. And actually, it's not. It's all about God and what he's doing. And as Jesus said, you know, the Father shows me what he's doing, and I get involved with it. I mean, that isn't exactly how he said it, but, you know, that's the gist of it. And the same is true for us. If you're a daughter, the Father's going to show you what he's doing and he's going to open doors and he's going to provide for opportunities for you to step into. And, uh, you know, he's going to use us. He wants to use us more, more and more and more to leave his footprints and his impact on the lives around us. It flows from relationship. And I just, I want to say kind of one last thing before we begin to pray. I think for many of us, we can feel that actually our influence, our, our impact, what we can do, what God can do with us, is often very diminished by the struggles that we're facing on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, many of us wrestle with big stuff, you know, at different seasons in our lives, huge challenges. And it can, we, it can have the effect of minimizing or making us feel that what we've got to offer or the impact that we can have, the difference that we can make, is minimized because of our pain because of the struggle, because of the challenges that we're facing. And, uh, you know, 
if you're familiar with this chapter, we haven't got time to read it, but you know, the, the, the rest of this little bit of uh, Esther's chapter talks about the fact that once she was in the palace, she then had to undergo 12 months of beauty treatments, which is an interesting detail to be uh, in the text, you know, this great big intrigue, and we get, we get told about this detail of 12 months of beauty treatment, you know, despite the fact that she was already a beauty. Why is it in the text? Well, I think it's there because it was, even that was significant for her being able to fulfill her significance. And it talks about myrrh being one of her treatments. And myrrh is associated in the Bible with suffering. How easy do you think it was for her to spend 12 months, so that's like between now and May 2016, trapped in a palace with hundreds of other women? <laughs> having carrot juice every day. I mean, you know, spas might be great, but I reckon sort of every day, surrounded by women that you don't know, who are all competing for one position, which is to be picked by the king. How easy do you think that was for her? I think it would have been a nightmare. I really think it would have been a nightmare. And, uh, you know, she did, it's not like she came from a particularly happy background. But actually what God was doing, yes, yes, you know, it's a picture of what was happening to her physical beauty. It was being enhanced. But what was really going on was God was refining her inner beauty. The inner beauty in her heart that was going to capture the attention and the favor of the king. And actually that's what happens when we go through tough times. There are always an opportunity for God to uh, create greater inner beauty in our hearts if we walk through those tough times with him. If we keep our hearts open to him and we're listening for his voice and we're pressing into him rather than pulling away from him. They're actually the things that God uses so often to grow our trust in him so that when the moments and the opportunities come and he opens a door and he says, Hill, step through this or Claire, step through this or whatever, We've got more confidence, more trust. We've experienced more of his grace. And we're better positioned, better planned, better equipped to walk through those doors. You know, God, the greater the work that God does in us, the greater the work that he can do through us. And so often it's in our times of struggle and difficulty and challenge that actually it's a beauty treatment in disguise. It's a beauty treatment in disguise. And it's all preparing us for the next thing that he has you know, this story is, is the only, I think it's the only um, book of the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God once. God's name isn't mentioned. And yet, if we kind of pan out from the detail, it is perfectly clear that whilst there was a whole pile of circumstances going on, a whole set of situations happening that seemed to be beyond anybody's control, it's perfectly obvious that there was somebody in control right the way through this story. There was somebody in control of Esther's life. There was somebody in control of Esther's scenario. There was somebody walking with Esther who was leading her into significant purposes that, was, you know, that left a huge impact on God's people for the whole of history. God's fingerprints are all over this story. You know, his name isn't mentioned, but his fingerprints are all over this story. And actually, his fingerprints are all over your story. You know, he's at work in your life at the moment. He's doing things in your heart at the moment. 
There are doors he's wanting to open for you, doors he's wanting to encourage you to walk through. You know, greater purposes and plans that he has for you to make a difference, you know, in this world while we're here. He wants to encourage us to embrace that, to embrace what he says about ourselves, that we are significant because of our design and because we belong to him and his daughters. And, you know, there is so much more. So why don't we stand to pray? We're going to have coffee in a moment. But always good to pray, I think, when... uh, good to respond to what the Lord's been saying. I think it's good to stand. You've been sitting down for a long time. Shake a leg. Shake it off. If you've got anything to shake off, shake it off. Shake a leg. Shake an arm. Have a stretch.